you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And indeed, as, as I was saying before the break there, democracy definitely does not just happen. It requires significant work from us as individuals. And if we don't have the time as individuals, then we should be supporting the many civil society organizations that take on that odious task for us. And one of those organizations is the Free Market Foundation, of which Krista Hutting is the deputy director. And he joins us today on the line to chat about what's happened in 2021, the highlights of 2021, and what's coming up in 2022. Good day, Christo. Welcome to the show. I trust you're well. Hi, Rob. Thanks very much for having me on. Fantastic, fantastic. Always good to chat to you, Christo. And I say so because you always have some fantastic stories and, and often often unknown uh, events that, that have taken place, some of which the public should know. What has been your, your absolute highlight for, for the year, or low light, in, in, in for that matter? I, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this before <laughs> I came on when I was doing some some prep work about this sort of question and, and talking point that might come up, because we, I think all of us, maybe regardless of where we are on the, on the sort of political, philosophical spectrum, we want to try and have some kind of certainty for weeks and months and years ahead. You know, we as human beings, we want to be able to to build things, to invest in our communities, to uh, pursue our different relationships. And I think at least until 2024, people should get used to maybe uncertainty in South Africa. So maybe you get comfortable with the uncomfortability, uh, predict unpredictability. We have coalition governments in the biggest, at least some of the biggest metros in the country after last year's local government elections. It's going to be interesting to see if those coalitions hold or if they sort of fall apart. And then, of course, that impacts people's daily life, regardless of whether you live sort of in a middle class suburb or somewhere a bit more underdeveloped when municipal services struggle and fail it becomes more difficult for people to sort of do their daily activity, daily lives. And then regarding the sort of policy space, already this year uh, on the 8th of January, we had the the 110th anniversary of the African National Congress, the ruling party of South Africa, and President Ramaphosa, um, who is, of course, also the president of, of the ANC itself and of the country, he highlighted two things which I think listeners should pay attention to, especially this year, and that's the basic income grant and then expropriation without compensation. So the basic income grant, um, we're seeing repeated calls for a grant like this to be introduced. South Africa has an over 47% unemployment rate. Now, in my view, um, simply introducing more grants won't unlock economic growth. You can support people with grants, but that will eventually run out and it's going to add more pressure to the fiscus. So it'll be interesting to see how government and treasury balances that pressure, that added pressure on the fiscus if they now introduce a basic income grant. And of course, when there's more pressure on the fiscus and government takes out more debt, um, that then in turn sort of suffocates the private sector. So government has to collect more tax revenue. So there's a possibility for increased taxes. In the coming year, I don't think we'll see an increase in VAT. That's too obvious a way for government to increase its revenue, and that might lead to more social unrest. They might increase petrol prices again at some point, so that's one 
to keep an eye out for. And then just on the expropriation without compensation point, uh, many will be aware, but for those who are not, um, the move to amend Section 25 of the Constitution through the 18th Constitution Amendment Bill did not garner enough votes last year to pass, um, so that didn't pass through through Parliament, but there's still the expropriation bill on the cards, and President Ramaphosa indicated that the ANC will try and find other ways to implement expropriation without compensation. So the the fight and the struggle for secure property rights for all South Africans continues, but I think those things especially stand out in the coming year. And I, I definitely tend to agree with you there, Chris. So there's there's some rather major concerns. Um, let, let's perhaps start with the basic in, income grant. The, there's there's a great misunderstanding as to to what a basic in, income grant is. We have a significant number of of people already receiving social grants. I'm not sure. The, the last count I saw was about 19 million. However, President Ramaphosa did say 11 million. Um, in, in, in his speech. I, wa- I wonder what the, the true figure is. Do we have any idea of what the true figure is of the number of people on social, on social grants? Yeah, I think one can look in the sort of 12 to 13 million um, range, just if you look at how few people are absorbed into the, labor mar- into the labor market every quarter. So that maybe is like between 600 and 900,000 if you're lucky. I mean, last year we had the July unrest we had uh, strikes, especially in the manufacturing and mining sectors. So all those would have meant fewer opportunities for people to get jobs. So I think the 11 million to maybe 13, 14 million range is pretty accurate. And as as one rightly points out and thinks, you know, fewer people are paying more and more of the taxes, and that's simply unsustainable at a point in time. I think many South Africans would be happy to pay even more taxes if they felt that those taxes were going to a productive sort of end, if they were actually used for municipal services and electricity provision and waste collection and that kind of thing. Um, So it's interesting that the ruling party is doubling down on some of these ideas. I think we should always, we we shouldn't hedge our, our sort of economic prosperity and our hopes just on one political party or on one person in a political party. I think you should look at what the given party, what it sort of aims towards, what it's, what was it founded upon, what guides it, what's its sort of guiding light, its sort of ideological touch points. And for the ANC, it's very much still the idea of a quote-unquote capable state of the state providing for all of our needs and wants and to do that inevitably. I mean, there's no such thing as a free lunch, so it's going to have to find ways to fund all these things. And that's why I think it might even try and do the basic income grant in a way to to reconcile all of the various other grants. So it might combine them all into one and then sort of advocate for it in that way and say, look, we're trying to be progressive and um, shrink down bureaucracy by making it one grant, but inevitably I don't think grants are the right way to go if we want to get actual economic growth going. I don't really see it as a a good thing to sort of force people into dependence on the state yeah. ad infinitum and to just not give them the job opportunities, but to tell them, don't worry, the state will be here to care for you. I don't think that's a very hopeful sort of society or framework, framework from which to operate. Definitely not. I mean, that's, that seems to be, I remember in 2019, one of the ANC's election campaigns or election messages was all about, they, they've, they've raised the number of, of social grants from 3 million up to uh, whatever it was, 11 or, or 12 million. 
at, at that stage. And that to me just seemed totally counterproductive and, and anti-society. As you say, we definitely want to empower people rather than make them dependent on, on the state. However, you know, another point you raised there was the combining of, of all the different grants in, into one grant. We've seen the COVID relief grant uh, issued to, uh, uh, I might be wrong here, 27 million, million people or, um, grant recipients on that. That, that kind of shows you the potential of the number of uh, basic income grant recipients. Could it be 27 million? Um, which would be completely unaffordable to, to, to the state. How, how much do you, would, would that be expected to, to cost taxpayers? Yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> I think that's a very good question. Uh, but also, what, yeah, don't, don't worry too much about how much it might cost taxpayers because some advocates in government might then start talking about modern monetary theory and simply printing money, which <laughs> of course devalues the currency. If one looks at the NHI, for example, I mean, that would be, at the moment, with inflation, that kind of thing, you're probably looking at, I don't know, 500 billion a year to sort of run the thing, just the NHI. So if it's other grants as well, I mean, it depends how much you want to make it per month. I think we could be looking at another 200, 300 in that range um, quite easily. And then you have to factor in not just the grant itself, so the, for example, 350 rand to each person, but factor in how much salary and sort of admin fees have to go to the various bureaucrats and people who have to run the whole system. I mean, they also, they need to get paid and have jobs. So all of that needs to get factored in. It's not just quote unquote calculating how much then each person gets and how much then a a basic income grant as a whole will cost. It's also what those other costs are, are involved. I, I mean, I wonder, it's obviously scary for government and it would be a bit of a, an admission of failure to step back and let and try a bit more economic freedom, but you wonder just how far it needs to get, um, how high inflation we need to get, how high the unemployment rate needs to get before government starts to at least try and scale back some of its more destructive anti-growth policies. You wonder where the line will be and sort of just linking it back to your your first point, which I think is, is always very important, just looking forward trying to make sure that you and your family are as relatively well prepped as you can be, regardless of whether government goes ahead with some of these more destructive schemes. Yeah, that does seem to be a common theme that that, that does pop up in, in most of the conversations I have with, with journalists and civil society people is becoming less dependent on on government as, as such and becoming more self self-reliant. However, government seems to be introducing policies that uh, completely promote the the opposite, become more reliant on government, uh, we'll take care of you, you sit back. And quite honestly, I just don't see how, how that is conducive to a a, you know, a fledge or a growing economy or advancement in, in any areas in society. What, you also mentioned the expropriation without, without compensation. And yeah, I think that that is a. There was a great joy, and I must say, I, I did the same thing on 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 the radio. I said, "Welcome to this. It's fantastic. The good news that's been put aside in in Parliament, amending Section 25 is off the table." However, then first it was Ronald Lamola who stood up, and then President President Ramaphosa himself, 
who said that they will continue through through other means. Uh, you mentioned there the expropriation bill. Tell us a bit more about the dangers of of that bill. Yeah, so this continues the the sort of rhetoric and the idea that many in government and in in some civil society organisations have punted that land reform has not happened, and that the rest so not not restitution but expropriation is the best way to to uh, quote unquote sort of solve the the harms of South Africa's colonialist and apartheid past, but that all of that. Sort of uh, passes over the fact that government has not prioritized rule of law based land reform and restitution. It has not implemented title deeds nearly as widespread as it could have been, and it has not funded the sort of the the department of of land reform as much as it could have. Instead of, for example, bailing out SAA and ESCOM and Transnet and the post office and all the other SOEs time upon time when those keep on failing. So on the one hand, government says land reform is a priority, but then on the other hand, they don't spend nearly as much as they do on other things, and they also don't implement efficient uh, processes. All in all, if we if we do go ahead with expropriation, fundamentally it undermines all South Africans' property rights, regardless of, for example, if it will be used first to seize quote-unquote white um, wine farms or that kind of thing. That might be done. It might be a sort of PR sort of PR exercise, but at the end of the day, it will undermine all South Africans' property rights and will, I think, make a mockery of the fight that was that was held and, and sacrificed for by so many South Africans to achieve freedom after, after apartheid. And now, so almost three decades afterwards, we risk undermining all of that progress that has been made. It's, it's not nearly been as fast as it should have been, uh, of course, but there has been some progress with with the restitution and title deed programs and and that kind of thing and the, the sort of wider economic and societal point is just if there isn't security of property and security of tenure you have less incentive to invest in in the sort of in the society or the country around you 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 want to sort of sink your capital and your time and your skills into a place where a future government won't just arbitrary arbitrarily come and seize your property. And it's not just about the current government. One should imagine that your worst enemies sort of get into power and they can use this power against you and your family and your community, maybe your religious group. Uh, it should never, no government, regardless of whether you, you quote-unquote like them, whether it's your guys or your girls in charge, they should never have that sort of arbitrary power to seize someone's property. So if we do go down that route, I'm not saying overnight things will become like Zimbabwe or Venezuela, but it's it's another notch on that sort of post and heading in that direction. So if you take away these elements, these ingredients of economic freedom and prosperity, you shouldn't be surprised when the country then declines even further. Um, and also just uh, looking forward again in the next year. So over the last five years, maybe South Africa's foreign direct investment has declined quite significantly. Also government bonds, are not as attractive to buyers as they might have been in the past. That's also a reflection on the government sort of debt risk portfolio. So if we do go with expropriation, we shouldn't expect foreign direct investment levels to increase anytime soon. And without that, you don't get capital formation, you don't get capital investment, and you don't get business creation. So we can have all the summits that we want. We can have the president. Uh, using very lofty rhetoric and talking about all the jobs that will create, will be created. But if you don't have capital formation, you simply won't have those opportunities in the long run.
Indeed. Well, that, that is, that is a, a common political speak, isn't it? Always talking about job creation. We'll create jobs, but we have no idea how to. And we're going to restrict the private sector from creating those jobs too. Well, it seems a counterproductive policy formation at, at, at every level of, of government. And talking about that, there's a lot of uh, localization policies that seem to be, in theory, great, but however, in, in practice, perhaps not not too great or conducive to, to our society. Right. So localization, I mean, it's been it's been done in many places around the world, the sort of idea of reindustrialization and, and reshoring supply chains. And, uh, and it could possibly work in some sectors in South Africa in the short term. I think it could create some jobs. It's a sort of idea of of focusing on your own quote unquote people or economy or businesses first and providing support to them so that they can compete on a, on a quote unquote level playing field with other countries. Now other countries of course use tariffs and subsidies for their own products and businesses. I think that's ultimately to their own economic detriment. And I don't think it makes sense for us to try a sort of tit, tit for tat approach, uh, in, in trade policy. And in South Africa, especially, I mean, just last week, was it last week? Everything moves so quickly in this country, but with the release of the part of part one of the state capture report from the Zondo Commission, um, if you inevitably, if one, if you mix the government with the economy and with society, you increase incentives for corruption. So if the only way for people to get ahead is through the necessary political connections, then you increase the, the chances that more unscrupulous Croniest corrupt behavior might take place. It's not inevitable, but it's simply a higher chance. If you have less economic freedom and you can't create wealth on your own through a normal business or something like that, then you're going to try and get into, into political, into the sort of corridors of political power and use those connections. Now, if we implement localization, that is in essence a system of subsidies that will be used to support the sort of champions in each industry or certain products that government deems appropriate and then again you increase the incentives for sort of cutthroat competition between some of those businesses you might see more tension in bodies such as Nedlac or Busa or BLSA where big corporates fight with each other to get that subsidy and they might also then simply trample on small to medium businesses which won't qualify for those subsidies so you just increase the stakes ever more and I think with our history of of higher corruption maybe than some other countries, we shouldn't in, we shouldn't open up more avenues for that to possibly happen. So if uh, if in the short term one can specify that you want to increase production of this product by this much or exports by that much, then fine, do that for three years. But then these targets should be clearly set out and clearly agreed upon. And it can't just be this sort of ongoing ad hoc, um, always moving the goalposts kind of thing. It's sort of the same idea, I guess, with, with lockdowns where at first the ostensible goal was to lessen pressure on hospitals, but then it was moved to infections and then it's moved to a number of deaths. And it's always, so government policy in and of itself undermines any of the quote unquote good goals that they want to achieve. And I, th- I, I suspect that the same sort of things would happen with localization. It's popular. It appeals in the short term. It, it's proudly quote unquote proudly South African, but ultimately I don't think it makes much economic sense. 
No, definitely. It might work in some countries, but it's questionable, definitely in here. We're chatting to Krista uh, Hutting from the Free Market Foundation. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back after the break. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson. Because democracy doesn't just happen. Welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. We're chatting today with Krista Hutting from the Free Market Foundation about what's going on in South Africa right now. What happened in 2021 and what could possibly happen in 2022. Now, Krista, you mentioned uh, something around the uh, state capture report and uh, and the, the deliberations around the other content within. What is your opinion on that? Do you think we'll see any action from it? <laughs> I, I really want to say yes, but uh, Don't the we all? last few years of... <laughs> the last few years of working in public policy have taught me not to get too, too excited. I mean, in a way, it is an achievement, I think. So as you mentioned earlier with expropriation, one should take a minute to celebrate these things. I mean, in the context of a more developing country, uh, countries where the rule of law isn't really respected, you could argue, you know, at least it's a note in the right direction. And that in and of itself is worth something. I mean, it could theoretically could have been worse always, but I don't think we're going to see mass action. I simply think too many people within the ruling party have dirt on each other, and if too too hectic action starts being taken, then all of the skeletons from everyone will be exposed, and again, that's simply going to cripple the party. Now, the ANC might be heading in that direction anyway, and maybe some of those in the quote-unquote radical economic transformation faction might simply decide they have nothing to lose and they're going to expose all the, the unscrupulous behavior from people, no matter who who they are, how innocent one might think they are, how good they are. Even people like President Ramaphosa, who many people look up to, I mean, he's still, he was President Zuma's deputy. There might have been other things that he was involved in as well. So one shouldn't ever discount these things, no matter how good he has been with with some other things, how, how you sort of judge him and, and measure him. So I don't think we're going to see very hard, necessarily high profile a race there might be noise here and then and someone might get released after a while um but i don't think it's going to be nearly as as maybe as much action as we we want to see perhaps even someone like former saa former boss the dudu muyeni she might also then be sort of used to take the fall for a lot of other things and go to jail for a few years but i don't foresee big people in the anc itself necessarily uh, yeah, we shouldn't uh, shouldn't expect to see them in, in orange overalls, I don't think. <laughs> no, definitely not. And then, you know, there, there again, it, it was up to civil society organizations to take to take those uh, officials to task, especially in the case of, of Didi Mignetti. It was, it was right. such, an, such an obvious case there. And it was, came as a surprise that the state didn't do anything about it, yet, yet a, a civil society organization... Uh, had tremendous success in in that, and well done to them on that. But that being said, we do need to start placing more value on civil society organisations, especially with rather controversial uh, policies that are are in in the pipeline. One of it um, seems to be doing the rounds in, in universities and in the halls of of parliament is the vax mandate, or the, the talk about making vaccines mandatory across society. Any, any thoughts on, on that? Is it, is it achievable, first of all, in South Africa? 
No, I don't think it's it's practical if one looks at some of the surveys and studies that have been done, I mean, especially by DRSA, there isn't this overwhelming uh, push for, for vax mandates that some would want us to, to believe. But I also just think, yeah, so number one, I don't think it would be necessarily followed or adopted by civil society at large. And many of us, I'll speak for myself now, not on behalf of anyone else, but for someone who lives in sort of a middle-class suburb, I should, you know, I should always keep in mind that just because people in my bubble support these things doesn't mean that's the way it is in the majority of South Africa. Things are very different uh, in other parts of Johannesburg, never mind other parts of of the country. And just because something is palatable here doesn't mean it's going to be palatable um, for people in, in with in other circumstances, with other backgrounds, with other sort of economic hardships they have to have to deal with. So practically, I don't think it will be very well supported and also i don't think it's the regardless of one if one thinks if, if one is pro this particular vaccine or not i don't think it's the best way to achieve high uptake uh, when you implement sort of public policies by force i don't know to me in a way that sort of almost psychologically undermines the thing itself if you feel that the best way to get it out is through through government force i don't necessarily think that that displays a lot of sort of trust or Faith, not in faith necessarily, but sort of trust in the in the in the mm. thing itself. It sort of shows maybe that you're more. trying to to sort of mm. circumvent certain things and and just try and like force it down people's throats. So I don't I don't agree with it either morally or practically. Um, and luckily, well, again, the constitution is only as good as as us, the the citizens and civil society. Our constitution is strong on on the right to bodily integrity and those sort of individual rights. And we should continue to push back against any attempts to undermine that because once you sort of accept the premise, it, it starts getting chipped away. I'm not saying if we accept it right now, we have an overnight dictatorship, but you have the, the seeds of that. That sort of stuff develops over time when you accept that the government should do these things, you know, for you and should try and implement a sort of, sort of system in a, in a society which they think is, is in your, in your best interest. Exactly. And that goes down to, to what I was saying in the intro there, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, however, we, we have to realize that the, the public has, has the power in, in a, in a true democracy. Although many of us have, have forgotten that, that we actually mm-hmm. do, do have that power, which is quite sad. We need to definitely create more initiatives that make people realize that the power lies with, within the people. It, it, there's also been talk about the extension of the state of disaster, which is is due on the fifteenth, do we think that the state will extend it, or or do you think that perhaps uh, we will see an end to it on on the fifteenth? I don't think we're going to see an end to it just yet, and I say that because uh, just this morning, comments by Dr. Nicholas Crisp um, at the department, I believe he's still at the Department of Health, but he's very high up in government healthcare in South Africa, but he indicated that. What, that in his view, government needs the state of disaster to continue implementing things such as a mask mandate, for example. And he thinks if if the state of disaster is ended, it will, in his view, result in chaos. I mean, that also shows you what he thinks of citizens and their yeah. sort of ability to to make their own decisions. But that's another discussion for another time. So I don't think government is going to let go of that just yet. Um, it's interesting to see many of South Africa's leading scientists also now coming out, speaking out against it. We know, of course, that the Democratic Alliance has been pushing this quite strongly and other civil mm-hmm. society organizations, which is always great. Um, but I think 
just it's a it's a bit soon just yet i think for the the bureaucrats to to give up this kind of power i think they're going to keep on to it for a little bit longer and maybe the the national coronavirus command council they still want to operate without parliamentary oversight for for a little bit longer to to do whatever schemes they're busy with so we shouldn't expect it to end just yet i think yeah and no, i love that kind of am am of am of the same view but however i do live in hope that the the government will come to its senses and probably due to uh, public pressure on on that front we're going to take a a quick short break stay with us and we'll see you right now you are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to 101.9 Chai FM. We've been chatting today to Krista Hutting from the Free Market Foundation. If you missed the show, please make sure to catch up with the podcast, which is available on Spotify or on our website at www.chaifm.com. Krista, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you as always. Um, any thoughts for for the new for the new year? Anything we should be highly concerned about or cautious about? Uh, mostly just some some consumer pressures. So expect inflation to to increase and try and factor that into your your sort of spending plans for the next few months, uh, if you can. I think the U.S. Um, Fed they're steadily going to wind down their stimulus programs and try and keep a, a sort of handle on their inflation, but that'll put pressure on developing economies like South Africa. So that's a big one to keep an eye out for. And then just, as you yourself said earlier, uh, Rob, if, if listeners don't have all the time in the world to keep track of what government is up to and planning and busy with trying to support organizations such as DRSA, the Free Market Foundation, the Institutes of Race Relations, um, Afri Forum, all of these organizations do very good work and try and, try and fight for your, your civil liberties and economic freedom in different ways. And I think if we if we all continue the sort of fight that we've been doing and the work we've been doing together with uh, citizens working with us and together, hopefully we can continue to hold government accountable in some ways. And at some point, I think things will take a turn for the better in South Africa, but we have to work towards that. So I look forward to, to people continuing to engage with us. And, and I have to thank you again for the opportunity and the platform. It's always a great, great pleasure to get to talk to you. <laughs> it's always always a pleasure to talk to you as well, as well Christine. And yes, I couldn't agree more. It is definitely about uh, supporting civil society organisations who often work in the in the background and, and go unnoticed. But we are uh, civil society organisations are extremely in, important in keeping government in check. Thank you so much for your time, Christo. We'll definitely chat again soon.